In these Sundays of Lent, we are in the midst of a sermon series on a particular text from the Gospel according to Mark from chapter 9, verse 24. I'll read that in just a minute. But we also have another text today. It comes from Romans 14, just two verses. We do not live to ourselves and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord And if we die, we die to the Lord, so then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And immediately the Father said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. The word of the Lord. One of you passed along to me an article from the New York Times, a column by David Brooks this week, David Brooks' column entitled The Cost of Relativism shares recent recent statistics about American life. Brooks expresses in that column deep concern about the growing divide between college-educated children, children of college-educated parents and children of high school-educated parents. In the 1960s and in the 1970s, those who grew up with college-educated parents and those who grew up with high school-educated parents behaved roughly in the same way. But since then, and especially depicted in the new book by Robert Putnam entitled Our Kids, there seems to be a huge and growing chasm between life and behaviors of these two groups. High school-educated parents dine with their kids less than college-educated parents. They read to them less. They talk to them less. They take them to church less. They encourage them less. And they spend less time on developmental activities. The result of this growing chasm between these two groups, according to David Brooks, is the loss of normative life in our American culture. He says, in many parts of American life, there is no minimally agreed upon standards for what it means to be, for example, a father. There are no basic codes and rules woven into daily life about what is expected and what is responsible and what is normative. He argues that we need to start raising expectations for all young people, not just some. We as a society have to start asking these questions of all our youth. Are you living for short-term pleasure or long-term gain and good? Are you living for yourself or for some higher calling? Do you have the freedom of self-control or are you in bondage to your desires? Brooks writes all of this advocating for significant action on social norms what's normative in our culture. He says that our culture needs repair up and down the social scale so that we can all be more morally articulate and have more responsible community life. We need a rebirth of ideals and standards to guide the way. It would be easy in these days, in these days, to conclude that many things are not going very well. 
I'm not talking about who lost this weekend in basketball. I'm not talking about how tired we might be of winter weather or the chilly rains. I'm talking about bigger things. Like you, I'm sure, I continue to be so discouraged and so dismayed at the events in Ferguson, Missouri. A microcosm, perhaps, of our nation that remind us that we have a long way to go. A long way to go in race relations and respect and community life. Like you, I suspect I see the mess in our nation's capital that passes for political leadership, and I wonder if we will ever recover the efficiency and the progress that this nation so desperately needs and deserves. Like you, I worry about community life in Richmond and many other things. Perhaps you remember the second law of thermodynamics from your studies growing up. In simple terms, this is the verifiable idea that physical things are falling apart at a terrific rate. We have lots of evidence of that, that things are falling apart at a terrific rate. I also tend to agree with the idea that people are put on the earth not to facilitate that second law of thermodynamics, but to indeed counteract it. People are put here to put things together. People build bridges. People build cities. People build roads. People write poetry. And people do music and art, like the art displayed in our hallway. People write constitutions and novels. People have ideas. People have gifts. And they're intended to be used as we hear from God's call and as we understand from Jesus' intentions for all of our lives, they are to be used, people, and our gifts and our lives for peace and possibility and harmony and wholeness. The world needs people to keep working, especially against the falling apart, for a better world, for hope and light. The theologian and the um, writer G.K. Chesterton once said that if he were a landlord, actually somebody who rented apartments to people, if he were a landlord, what he would most want to know about his tenants in the building was not their employment history, not their income or their ability to pay rent. Those are the things that most landlords want to know about people in their building. What Chesterton says he would want, most want to know is what the people believed. What they believed. In the best sense, beliefs Chesterton knew determine honesty. Beliefs, at least they should, determine our relationships. Beliefs, at least they should, determine how we live, how we treat people, how we treat property, and Adequate income is no proof against dishonesty. Um, a reputable job is not a guarantee against wastefulness or recklessness. Our beliefs indeed intend to shape our behavior and indeed shape our character. Therefore, our beliefs are the most important thing about us. So in these days, as we're moving through the season of Lent, especially uh, with everything seemingly falling apart, 
we encounter again the Father who brings his epileptic child to Jesus and says, can you heal him? Jesus says to the man, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the man says, I believe. Help my unbelief. What we also have to say about this, especially as it applies to us, is how much our beliefs intend to shape how we live. It matters to God what we do. It matters to God what we cherish. It matters to God what we give what we offer, how we live. It matters to God how we serve, how we give and how we live and how we serve. It matters. Those words that I read from Romans chapter 14 intend to give us a foundation. If we live, we live to the Lord. We do not live to ourselves. We do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, friends, we're the Lord's. And we also have this story from Jesus, this parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Here's what one New Testament scholar says. Jesus used parables and Jesus was put to death. Those two facts are related. No one would crucify a teacher who simply told pleasant stories to enforce prudential morality. The parables are not harmless tales, but weapons of warfare. The parable of the talents led almost immediately to Jesus' death in the gospel according to Matthew. It comes in Matthew 25. Matthew 25 appears right before the story of the cross. And Jesus dying. Right at the beginning of Matthew 26, it says this. The chief priest and the others heard these sayings that Jesus was teaching, and they began to plot his death. They began to plot his death because all the things that Jesus had been teaching included beliefs and how to live and the coming reign of God that was emerging in this person, Jesus. It matters what we believe, and it matters how we live, and it especially matters how we live and how we give our lives to God. We cannot just live selfishly. We're called to live purposefully. We can't just hold on to what we've been given. We're to live generously, graciously, in response to all that God has given to us. Grace has been given. Grace is meant to flow from us. In our parable today, it says that the man going on a journey entrusted his property to his slaves. To one, he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. But here's the thing. The word talent in this passage is a tricky word. The word talent worked its way into this story because the English word talent, meaning our natural ability, is the same word which means gold coin in Greek. So around the church, we often talk about time and treasures and talents because in this parable, parable there's the word talent. But really, and we should be clear, this is mostly about 
money. Our money. And what we do with what we've been given. Money is the clearest manifestation of what we have. We have time, we have talents, we have treasures, but the clearest depiction of our priorities can be found in how we use our money. Yes, our checkbook or our checking accounts and our spending habits show us most vividly our priorities. Here's the other thing. Jesus knows this. Jesus speaks lots about money. He has words about money all through the Gospels. Jesus says more about money probably than any other single thing. In fact, if you could cut out all the references to money, cut out all Jesus' references to the dangers of wealth, cut out all Jesus' call to love God with your life and with your money, if you took all of that out of the Bible the Bible would get really thin. Jesus knows that we need to talk about money. Jesus wants us to understand the importance of money for the kingdom of God and the dangers of money when it's used inappropriately. Money is never just to be left dormant. Money is never to be used mostly for the self. Money is a tool always a tool and it is a wonderful means to do God's work. Money is really what the master left his slaves. He entrusted them with it to see how they would put it to work, how they would use it for God, how they would use it for the kingdom of God. And what's the point of this parable? It's very important what we do with money. And the third servant blew it. Now we tend to get all tender-hearted as good, loving Christians about this poor third servant. We might think that Jesus come down, comes down a bit hard on this person. We might even worry about his poor fate. He didn't abuse the money. He just held it. Why would Jesus be so harsh on him? Well, Jesus is making a point, a big point, a really big point. God gives riches and God gives blessings, and they're not to be hoarded. They're to be used for God. God gives gifts, and God intends them to be applied to God's work in the world, not held, not hidden, not hoarded. This third servant failed to use the money for good for God, for the coming reign of God. And when we do that, live hoarding or live holding only or live fearfully like he did or live selfishly without a higher purpose, we encounter, we encounter the harsh disappointment, the wrath and fury of God. It matters what we do with what we have. It matters how well we seek to serve God with our lives, our money, our talents, and all that we've been given. It matters. So here's what we have going on today. We have an abiding sense that the world is a messy place. Lots of things seem to be falling apart. 
David Brooks names it in a certain way, the sincere need for social repair up and down the line to reverse the chaos and the confusion of our culture and to give us some norms which we seem to have lost. Or we can name Ferguson as a symptom of our broken world, or we could discuss Washington politics and lots of other problems. In all of this, the names, the places, the people, the problems, they may change, but it's really nothing new, at least according to the second law of thermodynamics, things are falling apart at a terrific rate. But then we have the message of Jesus, the parable of the talents. It's a strong message that God gives rich blessings and God expects of us that we use them for God's good work in the world. If you happen to be motivated by a harsh word, you got it in this story. Words spoken by the master, conveyed to us by Jesus. We have the words in this text, you lazy and wicked slave. Pretty harsh. Jesus uses these words to motivate us. Jesus uses these words so our lives will never resemble the third servant. Jesus uses this story so we get the point. Please, our lives, our gifts, our money, our abilities are used for God, for God's work in the world, for the coming reign of God. We are all, always called and expected to serve God, to venture forth with our best gifts at serving God in the world, money, treasures, talents, all of it. That's the important lesson that Jesus wants us to learn. God longs for our generous hearts. God longs for, yearns for our faithful response to all God's blessings. This is the way that God works in the world, using us, using our gifts, using our money, using our lives, freely bestowed with grace, freely given to God's work in the world for God's reign in the world. If you're not motivated by fear and harsh words from Jesus, maybe we're motivated from promises and clear truths. Well, that's in the Romans text. Romans 14. Romans is all about God's presence. Romans is all about God's promises that come to us in Jesus Christ, and it's for everyone. Romans is about living life in God's presence and for God's purposes. So Romans 14 says... You don't live to yourself. You don't die to yourself. If you live, you live to the Lord. If you die, you die to the Lord. So then, friends, whether you live or whether you die, you're the Lord's. There it is. This intends to be motivation for how we live. We're to be so rooted in God that our lives are lived for God. And if we live to the Lord, we live generously. We live graciously. We live selflessly. We don't hoard. We don't hide. We don't hold on to what God has given. We keep moving it through the world, for the world, and the kingdom of God in the world, like the first two servants did in the parable of the talents. We see our lives in God's grander purposes, and we live for God, giving our lives, giving our gifts extravagantly for God. So does it matter what I give to God? Does it matter what you give to God? Our beliefs tend to shape everything about us. 
our priorities, our practices, our plans, our purposes, all these are most clearly revealed, perhaps, in our bank statements. So with the father of the little boy who needs healing, we say, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief, so that I can become the kind of person you called all of us to be, O oh God, generous, gracious disciples. I hope all of us always are working on increasing our generosity, on seeking to live lives as joyful, purposeful servants, giving to God as much as we can. That goes against our basic nature because we're generally turned inward, so easily turned inward. Over and over again, God keeps saying, no, outward, toward the world, toward God, toward God's purposes, not getting, but giving. That's the way to life. So we keep working on our practices and we keep working on our priorities and our purposes and our intentions to live generously and graciously as we can. And then we'll know the light and joy that God intends. Let's all keep seeking to give. Give more. Give more joyfully to God's work through the church, through our pledges, through the offering of our lives, through the daily way we approach our work and our relationships and all the things we're involved in through, through every week. Giving that brings joy to the world. Giving that addresses the falling apart of the world. Giving that seeks to build bridges and bring beauty. Giving that strives to make a difference feeding hungry people, spreading God's light in this city from this place, bearing witness to God's purposes. How do we find life? How do we find life? That's always the question that people in the Bible are asking and people are asking Jesus, how do you find life? And he keeps saying over and over, by giving. By giving your life away. Our lives, our hearts, our love, our money, our devotion. And then we're going to hear those wonderful words. Well done, good and trustworthy servant. Enter into the joy of the master. May it be so. Amen. Let us pray. Touch us with your spirit again, O God. Deepen our faith. Increase our love. Expand our hearts. Make us generous, giving, servant people following Jesus. Amen.